Amen. May we exalt in our Savior's birth today. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the passage of Scripture that Monty read for us in Luke chapter 2. We've made it now through the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Last night we finished chapter 1 with Zechariah's Benedictus, Zechariah's blessing, Zechariah's song of praise to God. And we intended this whole time to arrive this morning by God's grace and for God's glory to arrive here in Luke chapter 2 as we consider the fact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I have really appreciated Luke's gospel. Remember, it's just a narrative. It's a story, right? We're calling it the story that changed the world. And Luke is giving this this narrative, he says, about the things, chapter 1, verse 1, the things which have been accomplished among us. He's he's taken with something, the, the, the things that have been accomplished, something that God has done in our midst. And one of the things that I think I appreciate the most about Luke's gospel is that there's not a whole lot of drama here. There's just the facts. Luke really reports things as straightforwardly as possible, as simply as possible. He gives some details, but but Luke is really concerned with the facts of this story, of, of this story that changed the world. And he wants us to be assured of the certainty of these things. It's not There's no doubt here. There's no uncertainty about this narrative, about this story. And he's he's been careful to do the research, and now he's carefully reporting these things that he has researched. These things that he says has been accomplished among us. Those things which have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we have this really inestimable privilege of, of just considering together the Christmas story. Maybe you, like uh, we for years, now this morning we didn't do that, but for years when the kids were home, we would gather around on Christmas morning, gather around the Christmas tree with, you know, the fireplace lit and the monkey bread hot and, and gooey and the coffee ready to go. We would sit there and then we'd read the Christmas story. But this morning we've, we've read it and now can we just take some time together to consider, to think about this this Christmas story, the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we've already heard about the virgin conception. We heard about that a few weeks ago as we worked our way through Luke 1. And it's really at that point at which the incarnation took place. But this morning, let's think about his, His birth. What's interesting to me about Luke's Gospel is that out of the more than 1,000 verses that Luke writes, do you know how many verses are given to the birth of Jesus Christ? One. Out of, I think it's more than 1,100 verses in the Gospel of Luke, something like that, one verse is given to the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse verse 7 of chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Just straightforward, 
nondescript. He just says it. There's, there's no play. There's no skit involved. There's no drama here. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, uh, cloths, and laid him in a manger. Just reporting the facts. And, and, and I think this morning, maybe what we do as we consider this Christmas story, uh, maybe the way we have thought about the Christmas story will be challenged a bit. We, we have, over the years, really transposed this story we, we, we've made this more into a made-for-Broadway play than we have just the simple facts of a narrative, the story uh, of the things that have been accomplished in our midst. We've, we've added lots of additions. We've reconstructed the Christmas story. But let's just think about it this morning. And as we do, I want to present to you, as we go through this text, three considerations, three things for you to consider as we think about the Christmas story. Those three things are one, to consider the providence of God. The providence of God. Two, to consider the peace of God. And three, let's consider the praise of God. The providence of God, the peace of God, and the praise of God. Now, Monty has already read for us the first 14 verses, and we'll take this all the way through to verse 20. But let's just think a little bit this morning about the providence of God, the providence that is involved in this story. In those days, here's Luke doing the the historian thing, right? He's giving us a historical marker because he's, he's showing us the verifiable truth. He's giving us the historical marker. In those days, a decree. Look at Caesar's decree. He tells us about that, that this is in those days, and then there's Caesar Augustus. Now, what you need to know is that this was a time of peace in the Roman Empire. It was a time of general peace. It was not a time of war. All the people within the Roman Empire were essentially in submission to one government. Really, everyone was in submission to one man, and his name is Caesar Augustus. He was the Roman emperor at the time. At that time in world history, the Romans had charge over the whole world. The Roman Empire covered most of the Eastern world. Caesar Augustus is ruling. He's ruled for more than four decades. Now, his name wasn't always Caesar Augustus. He was actually Julius Caesar's grandnephew. At that time, he was known as Gaius Octavius. But because Julius Caesar had no sons, he decided to marry Octavius's mother and then adopt her son as his own. Uh, now, listen, he reigned for more than 40 years. This guy was gifted. He was clever. He was well-respected. He's the one, Caesar Augustus, is the one who, was, who created the peace of Rome. Remember from your history classes, you've heard about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There were, this was a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity throughout the empire. Everything for the empire was hitting on all cylinders. Now think about this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar. Caesar. That's, that's a term uh, like king, emperor, you know, pharaoh. It's not his first name. It's Caesar. He was one of the Caesars. But now, now it's not just Caesar, but it's Caesar Augustus. Augustus should be understood as being an adjective. And it just means the one who is revered. One who is honored. 
This title was actually conferred upon him in 27 BC by the Roman Senate. The title was intended to set him apart for everyone else. It's for all intents and purposes, marking him out as, a, as, as divine. It is a claim to deity. According to archaeological finds, there was actually a stone that was found with this inscription, which was referring to Caesar Augustus. The, the inscription was, the Savior of the world. Caesar Augustus was proclaimed by Rome as being the Savior of the world. Why? Because he brought peace and prosperity to the Roman Empire. This man was revered so much that he was regarded as a god. So we have this august one, this worldly ruler, this Savior of the world who brought far-reaching peace to the Roman Empire, and he's calling for a census. Why? Well, the Roman Empire is growing He wants to be able to know how many people he has. Why? Because what do governments do? They like, yep, they like to tax people. He wants to know how many people he's got so that he can tax them accordingly. Same reason we have censuses today in our own country uh, to identify the citizens so that they can be taxed exorbitantly, uh, 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 accordingly. But we're talking here about the providence of God. Providence. What is providence? One man said this, Divine providence is the governance of God by which He with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. Divine providence, the doctrine of divine providence, asserts that God is God. That God is in control, not just of some things, not even of most things, but that God is in in control of all things. So now just think about what we have going on here. Just these first few words. You've got a guy in charge of the world empire who has a God complex, a savior complex. He's wanting to tax people in order to boost his political and economic standing. But what we really see is an almighty God over the universe ruling over the affairs of man even when those men think that they are God. I thought about this and realized that how easily I and and we are so often discouraged and disturbed at the political affairs of our times, aren't we? I mean, we've got in our world today, in our little country here, we've got some of the Democrats acting like Democrats while most are acting like socialists and some of the Republicans acting like Republicans, but most are acting like Democrats. And I I know that's putting it kind of mildly, but it's the reality. But I think that we too often forget what the, the old saints used to refer to as the hand of providence. And and we just taking this into account this morning, we need to stop living as if God can't or won't work even in politically dreadful, morally bereft times. William Cooper said this, Either his hand preserves from pain, or if I feel it, heals again. From Satan's malice shields my breast, or overrules it for the best. 
God is the one who raises up world powers, and God is the one who tears them down. And He does not do so at the will and whim of man, but He does so in accordance with His eternal plan. That's providence. So don't forget when you read verse 1 and read verse 2 and you think, what is this guy calling for a registration, a tax? What is going on here? Don't forget that there is a hidden hand of providence at work in Caesar's decree. But not only in Caesar's decree, you see, what we think as we look at the history is that there was actually a Jewish resistance to this decree. It's interesting. Luke tells us that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, it's interesting because we've learned that Quirinius actually governed at two different times in history. Now, we know that there was a census taken in 6 AD, but that's not this census. This is the first one. And in Roman times, those cens- that census occurred every 14 years, which means that this census actually took place in 8 BC. You say, well, what, what is so interesting about that? It's interesting because there was an apparent resistance to that call amongst the Jewish people. You had Herod trying to do Herod things and the Jews trying to do their Jewish things and try to resist. There was conflict between Herod and the Jews and Rome. And it resulted in this resistance to the census. You see, the Jews took it really seriously that if there was going to be any kind of census, in order to be counted properly, they had to go back to their homeland. They had to go back to their their ancestral towns. Well, apparently after about a period of two years or so, Herod finally gave in and forced compliance to this worldwide decree from Caesar Augustus. And he set up a deadline and he said, now it's time that you go back, each go back to their hometown and each give an account. Now, why do I point this out? I point this out because of providence. Now, just keep this in mind. Hang, hang in there and I'll, I'll kind of pull it all together. You've got Caesar's decree, you've got Herod's resistance or the Jewish resistance, and then you've got this Joseph and Mary's travel. The Bible says, verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed. Now, many people, when they come to this text, verses 4 and 5, wonder why we read that both Mary and Joseph, especially considering that Mary was around nine months pregnant or close to nine months pregnant, why both would take this four-day, 80-mile journey down, or as he says here, up to uh, Bethlehem. Basically, they're going from one fairly obscure place to another fairly obscure place because that's where Joseph was from. Now, why would he take Mary? It doesn't seem likely that she was required to go for the census, but she goes a very pregnant 14 or 15-year-old in the midst of winter there. She took that trip together with Joseph. They'd go through the Jezreel Valley, southward from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They'd pass Mount Gerizim and And they'd pass by the city of Jerusalem on their way to their hometown of Bethlehem. After some time that she was there, her water broke. And she goes into labor as a 14 or 15 year old girl. Her mother isn't there with her. Just a teenage husband in a strange place. There's no room for them in the inn. 
Now, this is just a little too much, but, but I, I, I think you need to understand when you read the word in, it's not the word in like we would think of it. You think of holiday in, you know, uh, whatever. This not this. Actually, the word in here is not the word for that hotel-like place. It's, it's a word that, that would think of a, just a guest room. There was no room in the guest room for them where they were staying. Instead, they had to stay in the common living area, which if I understand it correctly, would have been the first floor area, which was just above the place where the animals were kept. Now, just don't get caught up in all the modern versions and all the, the plays and the skits and the drama that, that has some busy innkeeper running back and forth and, and all the, there, there's none of that there. Just a, a full guest room, no room for them in this house. Well, Mary was there and she was pushing and she pushed one final time and that was followed by cries from her firstborn son. Just like all the other babies in those days, he was wrapped up in cloths, pieces of cloth. They would wrap their, their arms, their legs tightly, and then finally wrap their whole body together tightly, not only to bring, to bring them, you know, keep them uh, warm, but to give them some security. Just like every other child, only this child was laid in a manger, of, of, a common feeding trough, as served as his crib, served as his bassinet. Now, why all of this effort? Why all of this effort for Mary and Joseph to make that trek all the way to a place that Mary wouldn't have known all of that well, especially being that pregnant as a teenage girl? And why all of that effort? And I'll tell you why. And this is going to be a theme throughout our time together. Because God takes His Word very seriously. I never really understood those who sort of blur what God says about things just seem to discount the literal nature of what God says. I don't understand that. You see, 700 years prior to this, God was very serious when He said, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Bethlehem was not sort of a picture. Bethlehem was not a symbol. It, wasn't, it didn't stand for something else. It's not code language for something else. God says what He means and means what He says. That's what's going on. That's why Mary and Joseph make the trek. That's why the Jews resisted. That's why Caesar sent out this decree. It is providential because God is taking His Word seriously. And by the way, if He takes it seriously, so ought we. Without Caesar Augustus being on this God kick, without Herod and the Jews resisting the census call, without Joseph and Mary, uh, Joseph taking Mary with him, if, if Mary all of a sudden goes into labor as they make their way up the hill there uh, in Jerusalem, we don't have Jesus born in Bethlehem. And if Jesus isn't born in Bethlehem, he is not the Savior. And we have no salvation. You see, consider providence in the Christmas story. How God arranged everything just so. The Apostle Paul would say, in the fullness of time. That, that in just that little prepositional phrase, the Apostle Paul just, just summarizes everything that we've just said. In the fullness of time. God providentially working. As you consider that 
Christmas story, don't forget to consider the providence of God. But don't forget to consider the peace of God, secondly. The Bethlehem countryside is taken up with shepherd's fields. Almost as quickly as Luke just tells us, oh, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Almost as quickly, he transports us now about two miles away to the shepherd's fields. The cold, dark countryside in Bethlehem there, the shepherd's fields. Not... Not anything to be remarked about. I think I told you last night as we stood there and looked over those shepherd fields, the one remarkable thing about those shepherd fields is the fact that they were so unremarkable. Just wasn't anything special, just a field. And here you have out in the field these, these, if I can set the stage for you a little bit, these brawny men out there diligently watching their flock. They they would keep them from wandering away. They would guard them from predators who stalked the hillside. Probably at night now, they have their sheep somehow folded together and they're lying in the doorway to keep the sheep, the sheep safe. And I just imagine these shepherds as real men, you know? I'm talking about real men who aren't afraid. And, and they can stand the cold. They, they can face the beast. Yet at the same time, these real brawny men, if you can imagine, they also know how to tenderly care for a little lamb when it walks away. And they can put it up on, his shoulders, on their shoulders and walk it all the way back home. They're, they're, they're brawny men, but they're, they're despised as well. They, they were really considered to be the lowest of the low. A bit smelly, if, if we can just say it that way. And they spent their time with sheep. They smelled like, like sheep, right? They, they weren't, these, these people, they were so lowly esteemed in society that they were not able to testify in court because everyone considered them to be unintelligent, uh, uneducated man, they're the dregs of society. But there, that night, perhaps as the sheep are folded in the sheepfold, they're guarding the doorway, out of nowhere, there appears such a bright shining light that it could only be described, verse 9, as the glory of the Lord. The transcendent brilliance, brightness, of glory, the blazing refulgence of light, like the sun, like lightning. You can imagine that this scared them out of their wits. They are in sheer terror. They are absolutely terrified. There weren't any street lights there. There wasn't any weren't any lights from homes. Maybe just, if anything, the light of the fire around that that, that they that was keeping them warm. But they're in sheer terror. The Bible says three words in the original language there in, the verse, in verse 9 to describe it. It says something like this. They feared with great fear. It's, it's, they, their fear was a mega fear. What is it? It's the angel of the Lord. I believe it must be Gabriel. He says the same thing that he always says when we see Gabriel. Fear not in the... You can just imagine the shepherds saying, well, that's easy for you to say, fear not, right? The shepherds were most certainly fearing judgment. This to them was going to be it. This was the appearance that the wrath of God was getting ready to be unfurled on them. They would imagine God is sending His judgment. But fear not. Why? 
Because I'm not bringing you bad news, he says. I'm actually bringing you good news. In fact, not bad news that will bring you terror, but I'm bringing you good news that will bring you great joy. I'm not bringing you Christmas trees and not bringing you presents, not holiday spirit, not worse, holiday spirits. But the good news is that there is a Savior the very one appointed by God. In fact, this Savior is the Lord Himself. The very term Savior would imply, of course, a need. If there's a Savior, there's a need. And what is the need? The one the need is to be saved. If there's a rescuer, there's a need for rescue. If there's a deliverer, there's need for deliverance. So rescued from what? Well, just think about what the shepherds were fearing. They were thinking that the wrath of God was about to be unfurled. But this is what exactly what the Savior is about. He is about saving from the wrath of God against sin. You see, the good news, the angel announces, the good news is not that the Savior comes to give you a fulfilled life. The good news is not that the Savior comes to give you purpose in life and meaning in life. So much of the way what we talk, the way we talk today when we share the gospel is just fraught with error. We, we say things like God loves you and wants to give you purpose and meaning in life as if God were some kind of grand therapist or God loves you and wants you to be happy as if God were some kind of entertainer. No, listen, the angel told Joseph, Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their what? Sin. Not from their unfulfilled life. Not from their unhappiness. But save them from their sin. He is the Savior. The one who is appointed to save people from their sin. To rescue them from God's wrath against their sin. Just like any other child. Born just like any other child. Wrapped in cloths just like any other child. No halo. No golden beams shining out from the manger. Yet, though he's like every other child, he's unlike every other child because this child is the Christ. Now listen. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ comes from the Greek word which means anointed one. It means chosen one. It's similar to the Hebrew word for Messiah. Jesus is the Lord's human given name. Christ is His title, signifying that Jesus was sent from God to be the King, the Anointed One, the Appointed One. He is sent to be the Deliverer. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Anointed One. And as the angel announces this, as the angel says that there is born to you in this day, this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, All of heaven can no longer remain silent. Perhaps it was all of heaven. There's this great multitude, literally thousands of thousands of a heavenly host. Thousands of thousands from the heavenly army. All of a sudden they appeared together with this angel. Whether it's in the the, the sky or whether they're on the earth. All of a sudden, they're all revealed instantaneously and they they cannot remain silent. They are all praising. Now, by the way, when this word praising is used in the New Testament, it's only ever used of 
acclamation of God, appreciation for the work of God, admiration of the person of God. I think it's really something because we've told you now for weeks that that, that angels hadn't appeared in hundreds and hundreds of years. These shepherds had never seen an angel. And in the period of a few moments, they not only saw an angel, but they saw an entire host, heavenly host of angels saying what? Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And what about on earth? What about on earth? Glory to God in heaven and peace to men on earth. That's the point. We're considering the peace of God. You see, there's a Savior born. And because the Savior has been born, there can be peace. This is, this is not talking about some John Lennon song. This kind of peace. This is, this is not talking about the Christmas spirit. This is talking about peace with God. Peace with God. God, because a Savior has been born, there can be peace between God in the highest heaven and men on the lowly earth. Peace for those who are standing in in grace. Would you keep your finger there in Luke 2 and just turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 5 just for a moment. And you know this passage well, but I just want to highlight it for you. Romans chapter 5. In verses 1 and 2, Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. What grace? Go back to Luke chapter 2. What grace? Luke chapter 2, he says in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. That grace. The grace of God's good pleasure. The grace of God's good pleasure. You have this peace, peace with God. You see, men and God are naturally, in His natural state, Man is God's enemy. There exists a hatred. And yes, I said hatred between God and man. God hates sin and God hates sinners. The Bible says in Psalm 5.5, God hates all evildoers. Yet he's talking here about peace. It is the absolving of that enmity between God and man. God absolved the the, the enmity between God and man by sending forth His own Son to absorb God's wrath against those whom He hates. This peace, that's what we need to consider. What God was doing was God in the Lord Jesus Christ was making peace for to us a child is born To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For he himself is our peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That that was incredibly good news to those brawny shepherds out there in the middle of Bethlehem's shepherd fields. Because they were thinking that God was coming to announce His judgment. And God was coming to announce peace. There can be a relationship between you and God no longer a relationship of enmity, but a relationship of peace. You have access to this by grace. You come into that through faith. This is exactly what Paul says. So consider the providence of God in this story. Consider the peace of God in this story. But lastly, I want you to consider the praise of God in this story. Let me pick up reading in verse 15 of Luke chapter 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Consider the praise of God. Having seen this astounding sight there in the middle of the shepherd's field. The shepherds decide, not not necessarily because they were commanded to do so, but they they decided that they would take the approximately two-mile walk and go and find this as it was said by them to the angel. I mean, can you imagine that? They just believed what the angel had said. Okay. Makes perfect sense to them. They believed it, literally. Literally. They they didn't think that this was some sort of symbolic or language or some kind of secret code language. You know, I can just imagine if these shepherds were some evangelicals today, they would say, well, now what the angel must have meant was, was it wasn't a real baby, but there was, there was peace. There was hope born that day. You know, not a real child we're talking about here, but the birth of hope. It's a symbol. Because you know this is angelic language and and angelic language is sort of fuzzy and and we can't really be sure and and we we, we shouldn't take this literally. No, the shepherds just said, well, let's go find this. Let's go find this child. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's find a child that was born, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And so they just looked for that first child, I suppose. And somehow they knew where that was. I don't know. But they went there in haste. They they didn't wait. And they found it. They found Him. Just as the angel said. Isn't that wonderful? That some shepherds who weren't considered smart enough to be intelligent by the world. Some shepherds who weren't considered... uh, 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 They didn't smell good enough to be accepted by the world. 
heard what God revealed to them through his messenger and just believed it. The first evangelists. They weren't trained in religious schools. They weren't the elites. They were just common, mostly despised shepherds. Foolish in the world's eyes. Discounted by the world's eyes, in the world's eyes. But these men were the very ones to take God at His word. And you couldn't shut them up. They said they reported, the Bible says they reported to all. I, I think there must have been more than just Joseph and Mary there. I think that there were likely many gathered together. And if not gathered together, then certainly those that they met on the way. The shepherds just explained what they heard about this child. And verse 18, everyone marveled. Everyone admired this. Re- wow, that's really something. Hmm. Wow. What is. Hmm. Everyone marveled. Mary, verse 19, treasured. How did she treasure? She, she just pondered. She mulled these things over in her mind. Can you imagine, ladies, 14, 15 year old, just giving birth to your firstborn son? And then some brawny shepherds show up telling the story about a visitation from heaven. And she's just, wow. That's why Luke is is interviewing Mary. That's where he got all this story and he's interviewing her. She's just pondering these things in her heart. And just, again, nondescript. and, and, And Luke says, and they marveled, Mary treasured, And then the shepherds returned. Isn't that interesting? They returned. They returned doing what? They returned glorifying and praising. I wonder about those shepherds, don't you? Whatever became of them. I suppose you couldn't, as I said. I don't think you could shut them up. They went back to their work as shepherds. But something was different now, wasn't it? Something changed. I imagine they spent the rest of their days glorifying and praising God, not forgetting what happened that one dark night while they, the despised in society, guarded their sheep and heaven came down. Consider the praise of God in this Christmas story. So much to praise God for. God coming to lowly shepherds just in a common, ordinary way. Bringing His Son into the world. Announcing peace on earth. Arranging all of these things providentially. Why? Because God takes His Word seriously. God takes His Word seriously. As we think about Christmas, consider the providence of God. How God arranged all of these things in the fullness of time. It's not happenstance. Consider the peace of God. How God intervened in human history to make peace with those who were His enemies by grace through faith. And consider the praise of God. When when God revealed this truth, when God reveals this truth, the only proper response 
is the response of praise. Now, you can be too dignified for that. You can be too high and mighty for that. You can be too elite for that. But I think it behooves us all to become a little bit like shepherds today and to walk out of this place glorifying and praising God for what we have heard and what we have seen. This, my friends, is the story that changed the world. Let's pray. As we go from this place today, O oh Lord, may we not go in any other way than in praise of You. Thinking, how could it be that God would tell us these things? That we, lowly though we are, would hear this great message that God put forth His only Son to be the propitiation for our sin, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for us. And that if we just believe Him, just like those common, ordinary shepherds take you at your word, we'll have the hope of sins forgiven, eternal life, presence in the presence of Almighty God, forever. And if there are any here today who do not know that great assurance, oh Lord, press this story upon their heart until they bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Him as their Savior. Help us to glorify You today. These things we pray in Jesus' name and together all God's people said.